In short, when people are asked to do their best, they do not do so. This is because do-your-best goals have no external referent and thus are defined idiosyncratically. This allows for a wide range of acceptable performance levels, which is not the case when a goal level is specified. This is the TTL Podcast. We want to teach you tactics to better understand and lead your technical organization. Grounded in our extensive experience leading teams and organizations both large and small, and guided by the best research available. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us again. Today, we thought we would talk a little bit about goal setting. And in the vein of goal setting, I think we should make it our goal, Andy, to keep this podcast, let's say, under 45 minutes? Oh, that's a challenging one. I don't know. Can you convince me of this, that we can do this in some way? (laughs) I can't. Let me start here and say, post-edit, our episodes have been mostly under 45 minutes. You're right. We do have a lot of leeway in edit. Okay, yeah, let's do it. We're going to try to keep this one under 45 minutes. So this may or may not be a challenging goal, but we've certainly given each other self-efficacy to believe that we can do this. Why did we decide to talk about goal setting? I think this actually came about because I was reading a relatively decent article, which was an excerpt from a book or a summary of somebody's book. And a piece caught my eye, which said, as a leader, it is important to challenge your people by setting challenging goals for them. And that is a way to get your peak performance. Another way to put it is if you don't set challenging goals for your folks, you won't get peak performance. So I thought that might be an interesting thing to explore. Both A, do we believe that's true? And B, if it is true, how do we go about doing that as leaders? I think that is an interesting one. It's something that I have to admit I don't have pat answers to. It is a challenging goal to talk about this subject. But I've also done some research, we've passed around some papers, and I think it's given me a much better model for thinking about this. There's a lot of people out there who say, look, you have to stretch your team. You have to set stretch goals for them. You have to challenge them as a leader and as a manager. Do we believe that? Do we believe that's necessary? for your team to achieve whatever optimal performance we could say, or whatever we can say is quote unquote optimal performance. Oh, let me pull that apart a little bit. So I struggle with that idea of optimal performance and it it has this very externalized mechanistic view of a manager who's like poking around in the guts of a machine. So it troubles me. However, I also know that me personally, if I don't set goals, I don't do quite as much. I do believe that having goals does cause me to do more than I would have done otherwise. And part of it, I would say, is because it gives me direction. It gives me a challenge that I might enjoy. So yes, I can believe that teams and individuals will do better with goals. But, oh, that framing that the standard literature gives... Of, as you said it, of the kind of like, the manager has to set this goal because the machine won't work optimally without it. But what is your reaction to it as well, Manchow? I do also have that visceral reaction. If y'all who have listened to our podcast for a bit, you might be able to get a sense of the style of leadership that Andy and I prefer. It tends to be very participatory. It tends to be very bottoms up driven. It tends to be very empowering of the folks closest to the information on the ground. And viewing them not as parts, but as intelligent actors within a large, complex society and system. Absolutely. And insofar as we believe that, I think we also believe the fact that you can't compose a whole from the parts and that there's these systemic effects, right? And so you have to treat the whole as a whole in many cases, if that makes any sense. It is disconcerting for me to think about a leadership style where you say, oh, you all have decided on a goal 
Now it is my job to come in and poke you and say no. What if we did this or what if we did that? That may not be the only way to do it, and we may figure out other ways to do it as we explore, but that is certainly the way that I've seen my leadership do it. And honestly, I've done that in the past as well. Hey, you said you wanted to sign up 10 customers next month. What if we made that 15? And that is actually a technique that I've heard sometimes, which can be useful as a thought exercise, I would say. Have you ever heard of this one, which is the break your mold of thinking with customers? We're, we have 10 what would it take for us to have a thousand? You do a mm -hmm. hundred times the number you currently have because your current approaches won't work. And so it's a useful way to think. But in terms of a goal, I don't think that's necessarily the best way of choosing what your actual goal will be. And I think it's challenging too. And when you're doing a brainstorming exercise, I think that's a relatively great idea. Can you bring that same mindset into goal setting where you're saying, hey, we're setting goals for the next quarter, but let's switch off that goal setting part and go into the brainstorming mode to see what different things we might be able to do to set a more challenging goal. So I'm not sure. Maybe that works. Maybe it doesn't. We could talk more about it, but I do think it is a different sort of mindset. So when setting goals, I think many people mm -hmm. probably will have heard of this inverted U curve that we hear about the kind of difficulty of the goal and the performance you get out of the system. That if you set the difficulty too low, your performance is low. If you set the difficulty too high, your performance is low. And somewhere in between, your performance is high. I think this is called the Yerkes-Dodson Law. I don't know yeah, how to pronounce right. that first name. Is it Yerkes? I believe it is. I've only read it and I've never heard it pronounced. All right. Let's say that it's Yerkes. The Yerkes Dodson Law. And if we butchered Law. your name, Yerkes. Yeah. <laughs> We're really sorry. We're sorry. It's been around for a long time. It's apparently a kind of like fundamental idea. But is it something we believe that we should go off of? And does it give it? Does it really give us much guidance to work with? I think it gives us some. When you were talking about your personal experience, I experienced that too, right? I think. If a goal is too easy, sometimes you set it aside or you don't focus on it. You're saying, oh, that's easily achievable. I can do that at any time. Why worry about it? And obviously, we know if a goal is too difficult, such that it's unattainable, the stress that you get from trying to meet, especially an externally set unattainable goal, I think everyone can agree that doesn't help performance. Maybe not everyone can agree to that. I've certainly had bosses in the past. Maybe you and I even shared a boss who tended to believe that if you set unachievable, difficult goals, that motivates people. I don't know, but I tend not to believe that. But it is a common belief that we should talk about a little bit, because I think many people will encounter it, which is the idea that if, if some is good, if some stretch is good, why isn't more stretch better? And I think we'll get into it a little bit when we get into the research, but there's this idea of self-efficacy, which says, if you believe that you can do it, if you can understand yourself as being able to do it, then it's okay. But as we all know, there's a point at which you just think this is a farce and you just tune out. So a goal mm -hmm. set too hard doesn't really help anyone achieve it. And so I do believe that there is something to this inverted you, Yerkes Dobson law type thing where a bit of stress in the system does, I think, help for performance. And I actually, I've been reading this book called Leaders Eat Last which I don't know if you've read, there are parts of it which are, I think, fantastic. And I think there are parts of it that are, eh, maybe I'll skip it. But it talks a lot about how human chemicals come into play and how our evolution has structured us to behave with certain chemicals. And I do think that having a little bit of stress introduces a little bit of cortisol into your system, right? Which is not great in sustained or great amounts, but cortisol is a performance drug in some ways. So I think all of that combined together, personal anecdotes from you and me, experiences, as well as tying it back to some biology, it does get me to believe that introducing some stress into the system is necessary for us to, whatever that optimal performance is, for us to perform better, let's say. And you can understand that also just from the idea of how do we learn to be better on, on something? 
is we mm-hmm. push ourselves to try to do something that we haven't done before. And that is a stressful activity. And if we weren't mm-hmm. pushing ourselves into that thing of not having that we haven't done before, we wouldn't know some of those limits of what we can or can't do. It sounds like we both are arriving on a consensus that we do believe a little bit of stress introduced into the system is a good thing. Yep. Too much is a bad thing. Too little is a bad thing. Yep. And we haven't really talked about how to introduce stress into the system. Is that the next thing we should discuss? I think maybe how to introduce stress. And I think that will then lead on to where is that middle point that is mm-hmm. useful? Do I just walk in one day and with a baseball bat and say, perform better, everyone. Hit your sales target <laughs> with the baseball bat well, slam on a desk. Is that the kind of stress we're talking about? It could be. The funny <laughs> thing is, as we were sending articles around and thinking about this topic, and I agree with Andy, I also did not have preconceived notions necessarily about this topic or pat answers ready to give. And so I feel like this was one in which I had to do a little bit more reading and challenge my own thinking. There does not seem to be a lot written about how to introduce stress into the system. Not a ton at all. I think, and maybe this is too easy an answer, I think what I got out of the research is that people and teams will naturally introduce stress into the system and set difficult goals for themselves when A, they have a strong identity slash trust with the team that they're a part of, And B, when they and their team have high self-efficacy or high team efficacy. And we should probably say a bit of what self-efficacy is with a corollary of team efficacy. And I think you mentioned that a little bit, but just to, in case somebody, in case folks missed it. Or in case self or team efficacy, Right. The concept of efficacy is your own belief or your team's belief that something is possible to achieve. To put another way, that you and your team have the skills and ability to achieve something. Is that a good summary? Yep. Yep. The thing I have here highlighted in front of me is one's perception of one's ability to accomplish a specific task has been labeled by Bandura as self-efficacy. Bandura being a researcher's name. So getting back into it, now that we have a good definition of it, I would say... Again, to summarize, having strong trust and identity with your team and then having strong self and team efficacy will naturally lead that group of individuals to set challenging goals, thereby self-introducing stress into the system. That is, I think, my take from the research. What about you, Andy? I think I agree with all of that. I got that. I would also, I would add a few other things that... You want that self-efficacy. You also want specificity in the goal. You want to avoid the situation where everyone has maybe a different interpretation or that it's just vague. The thing in the research we found again and again was the do your best challenge uh, wasn't very good. It wasn't specific. It didn't help people. And the other one was commitment. So someone may believe or a team may believe that they can do it but they may not have committed to it. And so that's the other thing you need for that goal to actually be useful for creating that stress, creating that, that reaching, which is they need to commit to it. And isn't it interesting that these concepts of specificity and commitment, this might be our third time talking through a different topic where those come up, right? I certainly remember, for example, the BART model yep. of analyzing a team situation where you want to be specific about your roles and boundaries and you want commitment around your responsibilities. So I think, you know, if you take nothing else away, there are these running themes through leadership that come up again and again in various different topics. And now I feel like I'm going to be a a late night advertisement on television. And I'm going to say, but wait, there's more. I can see you though. You're not wearing this Steve Jobs like black shirt (laughs) and a black background. No, I've got my standard plaid on. (laughs) But wait, there's more, Monchao, because you also want to formulate your challenges, formulate your goals with a learning orientation. We've heard about this before as the organizing for learning. Mm -hmm. You want to frame the goal as 
they're learning to do something better. You can do what's called performance orientation, which is things like set your sales to X, or you're going to get 4 million in sales this quarter. That would be a performance orientation. A mm -hmm. learning orientation is going to be you'll successfully take a customer through the spin model for selling a few times or like six times or mm -hmm. something. Because mm -hmm. the idea is you're having to learn a whole new technique. Now, both of those are valid ways of setting up a goal. But what the research found was that the learning orientation is more robust, more often than not leads to higher performance. Whereas the performance orientation, it can, but there's many more variables that knock it down and cause it to not perform well. I think you stated that, but I want to pound on that. It's not that you cannot set performance goals. Yeah. You can and you should. They just have a higher chance of not leading to the performance, performance that <laughs> you hoped for, whereas setting learning goals has a better chance. So they need to work in concert. I also want to say that learning goals, and I had to look this up for myself because I didn't really understand what learning goals were. I was like, does that just mean that you're going to go out and you're going to learn about something? Like, oh, instead of saying I'm going to sign up 10 customers, I'm going to learn about the wants and needs of some customers. I've seen teams actually formulate their goals that way. And it feels safe. It feels like a way of setting that we're learning. And I've watched it also turn out to be like pretty meh. It doesn't feel mm -hmm. like you've achieved anything at the end. Mm -hmm. So what did you find is a better way of formulating it? I think that your learning goals should also should be proxy goals to your performance goals. And so they should have steps and they should connect to some sort of outcome, be specific, right? In terms of specificity, instead of being vague and saying, hey, we're just going to learn because we're learning. Right. And I think if you do that, then sometimes your learning goals, while phrased differently, end up sounding a lot like or laddering up or mirroring what you would set as performance goals pretty well. I agree. And I think I have a quote from one of the papers that mm -hmm. underlines what you're talking about. So it says, a learning goal orientation seems to refer to the desire to undertake challenging tasks and acquire new knowledge and skills, whereas a performance goal orientation refers to a desire to ensure success by choosing tasks or goals that one can easily master and hence get praise from others for success. Ah, and so already we can see why learning goals are better, because if a performance goal is about choosing easy tasks, and we know that easy tasks don't lead to performance because there's not enough stress introduced into the system. Yeah. Then there we are. So your idea of laddering these things, which we'll also get to on proximal and distal pretty soon, mm -hmm. your idea of laddering these things, I think is completely right. It's about laddering up a set of skills that bring you to that final goal and get that performance that you're looking for. And so the thing is that it's not necessarily going to be hugely different in the actual goal that's set, but it's in the framing of how you're approaching this goal. I think we have a good framework, right? Trust and identity, strong trust and identity to the team, strong self and team efficacy, right? Spe specificity in your goals, commitment to your goals. And the last one would be, what did we just talk about that is slipping my mind now? Learning. <laughs> Right. And having focusing on learning goals, not to the exclusion of performance goals, but not forgetting about learning goals. So as a framework, I think that's interesting. And as a leader, you can say, I'm going to set up my organization or my team to be able to do all of these things. But I still don't think that we've answered the question of, so your team does all of these things and comes out with a goal. Now, what do you do? Poke them? No, that's not it. That's not it. Can you do better? Can you do better? We haven't really touched on that point. How do you actually select the goal? Because that's really part of the goal selection process that you're asking about is they come up and they say, all right, this. And you say, I don't like that. So one of the things that came up multiple times that they researched quite a bit was the question of are assigned goals better than participative, par oh, I'm going to mess up this word all the time, participatively 
assigned goals. Or Participatively set goals. Set yes. goals. Are assigned goals better than participatively set goals or are self-set goals better? And that was a big kind of murky area. And basically the research appeared to be, it actually doesn't matter. They all had in the end, the same amount of kind of like randomness or variance and whether or not people reached the end or not to hit the performance that they were looking for. But I think there was a bit of like self-set goals were often seen as set lower than assigned goals. So I would say that for my style, that participatively set goals, you're going to get the best outcomes as a real world thing. Because so often we just don't know what's actually possible. And a purely assigned goal, it's missing out on a lot of information. So I think that having a conversation with the individual or the team, possibly anchoring on some initial assigned goal proposal, and then working through it. Because what that also allows you to do is to have that conversation, to frame it for that learning orientation, to make sure it is specific, it's clear what's really being asked, and to work out that narrative for self-efficacy, if whether or not the team or the individuals believe that they can do this. And that self-efficacy, to me, gives you the point at which you might be able to push a little bit or pull back. If you're hearing people saying, oh yeah, that would be easy, you might say, what would be a little harder then? Is there a point where it becomes difficult? Or if they're saying, if they're doing the standard, I know I can't say no, so I'm not going to really engage and I'm just going to say yes kind of conversation. You need to listen for that and say, all right, I'm not hearing a strong commitment because that's what we want, commitment. Mm -hmm. How do we pull this back so that's something that you really believe we can do? I like that level of thinking. When I think about this concept of self-set assigned or participatively set goals, I do come back to the research a little bit because to your point, each of those has its own set of values. It's not one is necessarily better than the other. There was a piece of research that showed that it depended based on what they call locus of control. Why don't we start with what is locus of control? In psychology, locus of control is what you believe controls what affects the events in your life. And so there are two locus of controls. An external locus of control means that you as a person generally believe that outside factors are affecting what is happening to you. It could be as vague as fate, perhaps, or it could be as specific as I didn't get that promotion because that person didn't like me or that the, the strategy wasn't well set by leadership. And so this project was doomed to fail. Yeah. Something like that would be an external locus of control. An internal locus of control, you might imagine, would be the exact opposite of that, which is a person who mostly believes that incidents in their life are controlled by themselves. Oh, I didn't get that promotion because I didn't build strong enough relationships with leadership. Things like that. And obviously people are not, you're not one or the other binary as these things always work. But you can categorize yourself mostly into one bucket or another. And what they found was that for folks who were primarily external locus of control, again, that's, they believe outside factors primarily influence the events in their life. Assigned goals worked really well for them. And self-set goals did not. In fact, self-set goals worked worse than control. And the opposite was true for people that had internal locus of control. So for people that believed that they were primarily responsible for the incidents that happened in their life, self-set goals were great for them. In fact, they were able to set challenging goals for themselves, whereas assigned goals they did much more poorly on, even relative to control. So I think there is a... There is something to take away here 
about when you can use assigned versus self-set goals. Okay. Do you have some ideas about how I would know which one to use with a group? I think that although the research doesn't say that, I think you could probably assess the locus of control for a group as well. My sense is that if you know your team to be fairly self-sufficient, you've seen them take responsibility for their actions. Now, this isn't to say all of the stuff around self-efficacy and whatnot, which we will touch on again because it's so important, is unimportant. But irrespective of that, if you've seen that they are generally internal locus of control for your entire team, I would say you could do a lot less pushing for those folks. If they have a self-set goal, many times you could probably take it as, yeah, this is challenging and they are pushing themselves and they're introducing stress into their system. Whereas if you have a group which is more, oh, I don't know why we failed here. This external team didn't deliver this API. There was no way we could have achieved that. And that's their primary locus of control. Then I think it's imperative for the manager or the leader to recognize that and perhaps use assigned goals for those folks, even more so than the participatively set goals. Say, hey, look, these are the set of goals that I've decided on. And not that you don't get feedback, but that we're primarily going to execute against these. Yeah. I think that sounds like a really reasonable way of thinking through it. Is It's paying attention to the needs of the team is, I think, a way of thinking about it is what, are, what do they need to succeed? We should also mention that groups aren't static. And this is, again, another topic which we will hear again and again through all of these podcasts. And so just because you allowed your group to self-set goals last quarter because you thought they had internal locus of control doesn't mean that because of the context of next quarter, assigned goals aren't the right way to go because they may change, right, based on the context. Because one of those things, getting back to the self-efficacy, is about their history, the story they tell themselves about how good they are at performance, how much they can learn, how far they can stretch themselves. And if that team had a quarter where nothing seemed to work right, everything mm -hmm. went wrong, they may have lost some of that self-efficacy and they might have shifted their locus of control to saying, look, we're now a victim of the external world. Nothing we did seemed to matter. Mm -hmm. You might need to bring them along, support them a little, and it might be partly doing an assigned goal. And for those folks like me who don't really like black and white answers because we don't think the world is black and white <laughs> and who may fall back to saying why X or Y if I just do participatively set goals and just always do that will that will solve all my problems. I think there are challenges in a leader coming in and participatively setting goals as well. Two that I would watch out for. One is that identity piece. Remember, it's important for those folks to have built a strong trust bond and identity. And so if you're a leader who's on the ground and who they can identify with, then I think that being a partner in that goal setting really helps or can help. But if you are, again, in the boundary thing, outside of a AAA boundary, right, especially as your orgs get larger and larger, and you don't have that identity built with your team because maybe you run seven teams, right? And so team two is like, he doesn't really belong to team two. He's just like overall manager of seven teams, right? Then it's probably more detrimental to come in because you haven't established that identity. They don't identify with you. You don't really identify with them. And so coming in and really trying to participatively set goals with those folks probably is not a great idea. Yeah, you're going to trigger all sorts of social dynamics that will probably work against you. And then the last one that I will touch on, and we will touch on not just this part of it, but more because it's so important, is that team efficacy or self-efficacy thing. Because if you come in and by your actions, whether intentional or not, you're reducing their efficacy, you're going to have a very difficult time getting a successful goal, successful challenging goal out of that team. And I say, despite your actions, because a lot of times leaders come in wanting to increase people's efficacy, but doing it in a terrible way, right? Somebody coming in and be like, oh, look, Joe over there was able to get that done in six weeks. 
you're better than Joe, you should be able to get that done. Or saying patently false things or things that people can't believe. Things like, there is no way you all could absolutely fail. You got this. You guys are the best. You folks are the top engineering team in the company. Efficacy has to be team and self-believed, right? To that kind of commitment and to your definition of efficacy that you read earlier. And if your team can't believe it, and if you can't transmit something in a way that they can believe, you're actually doing harm when you come in and try to encourage the team that they can meet a goal. So I think those are the two pitfalls that I would see in participatively set goals. Yeah. Yeah. If there's not the belief that the person helping to set the goal should be there, and also that they are part of that goal in some way. Is that it? Because I'm trying to figure this out. The person who's coming in from on high isn't part of the narrative that the group has about their ability to do these things. And so it's highly likely that the stories that they tell or the things that they try to pull out to, to participate in setting that goal won't be believed and might be actively distrusted. Or when they should have pushed back, the psychological safety, something that we still actually need to talk about more in depth, the psychological safety might not be there to challenge and dispute. And so there, there is a social dynamics, as I said before, there's a social dynamics problem that starts to show up in whether or not those open and honest conversations are actually going to happen. Now, yes, I agree. If you have somehow amazingly created a company in which the culture is that that CEO can come down over multiple layers of management hierarchy and talk to an individual team and collaboratively set a goal, I want to hear from you. I want to hear what you did <laughs> because that sounds very interesting and also very hard to make. And I'd be interested to know how you did it. Probably very context dependent and something that almost no one else could replicate, but it would still be interesting to hear about. Yeah. Talk to us. We'll invite <laughs> you on our show. We'll do our first. We don't generally like to do interviews, partly because of the reason we said in our last episode where there are so few experts, I think, in the world. And often interviews make people come across as experts, like my way is the right way and that's why I'm being interviewed, which I don't generally believe. But yeah. folks with interesting stories, anecdotes that want to explore them, and that would be a very interesting story. I'd love to know the context of your company, the space, how many people you have, the type of hiring culture you put together. That would just be fascinating. Yeah. And... And the reason I said that kind of like most people wouldn't be able to replicate it is because this is actually one of the biggest problems in management, I would say, is this idea of what worked somewhere else will work here. It's almost completely untrue because so often what worked there was a product of the culture of a long path of culture that organization has taken that allowed them to do something in particular. And since no other group has taken the same path, it's very unlikely that what they are able to do now is something that you can just pick up and do in your own organization and get the same results. I will just mention that that is the first strong leadership lesson I learned just a couple years into leadership, that we cannot replicate what worked elsewhere. Yep. I've learned that as well. And it still makes me sad. It really does. It really does. Yeah. But I learned it so strongly that it was 15, 20 years ago now that I learned this. And I still use it as an example. I still think about it a lot. Yeah, it was a very strong learning experience. So that said, let's talk about research and what research can teach us about what we can do in our organizations. Sounds great. And maybe the way we end this is by focusing on self and team efficacy. I think at the end of the day, what research tells us is that efficacy plays such a big, and I would argue, you may disagree with me, Andy, an outsized role in goal setting. And if you only did one thing to make sure that your team and organization set challenging goals, it is to increase their efficacy. Would you agree with that or would you disagree? I think I'd agree with that. Pay very close attention to the efficacy because it's going to control so much about what you do. So then let's talk through that. As a leader, how do you increase efficacy? I think 
one is you cultivate the story that they tell themselves. Mm -hmm. This is like on the feedback type thing. You give them feedback. Mm -hmm. Oh, that is another important thing about goals. For goals to work well, they need feedback on where they are so they can course correct. One important part of that is, because I, I knew I needed to get back to this at some point, the distal and the proximate goals. So a distal goal is the distant goal. It's like the final goal that might be a real challenge. And there, if you just look at that, self-efficacy may stumble. People may look at that and say, no idea. So what you do is you help to break it down into what's called proximate goals. So milestones along the way or things to try to tackle to get there. And then they build a sense of efficacy through hitting those proximate goals. That's one other way of building self-efficacy. So there are other ways, obviously, to build efficacy. I think you mentioned one, Andy, probably in private conversation or whatever, which is training, right? And I think that's a clear way to build up the skills of your team, right? They have higher efficacy when they feel like they've been trained up to the task. So I think that's a way to build efficacy. Another one that I found really interesting was what they call vicarious experiences. And one of the research papers suggested that what you can do is record teams, other teams or this particular team, in doing task-related activities. And then editing this video to only show the positive parts of that and emphasizing what they did. This gets back into the feedback mechanism as well, where this paper says, look, what you should do is give feedback that rewards the behaviors that are doing well, and that builds efficacy. Yeah. And so I think, interestingly, those, the video thing I had never actually thought about. So yeah, I heard that. I heard that. And I thought it was a little strange, but it's worth a try. Right. And, and the last thing would be really to your point that you talk about a lot, paying attention to the team. There are a lot of states, effective states, which can make them less effective and decrease their efficacy, things like anxiety and whatnot. And so really paying attention, especially during the goal setting part, whether those are creeping back in and trying to eliminate those outside of the team, I think is really important. One other one came to mind, and this mm -hmm. one, very specific tactic for a very specific type of work. If we're talking about mm -hmm. software teams, and if we're talking about teams of engineers or infrastructure engineers who run operating software, so production systems. One part of efficacy can be their belief in whether or not they can actually affect the system when it has problems. Mm -hmm. And so doing like a failure Fridays or chaos monkey type activities where the mm -hmm. team actually causes problems and in that through a practice run learns how to bring it back up. It's, it's like the distal and proximate stuff again. The distal goal mm -hmm. is the when the site goes down, we can bring it back up. The proximate goal is we're going to cause a portion of the site to go down so that we can bring it back up and hopefully do this in a safer environment so that some of that pressure is gone. But that kind of like practice of the activity can be very useful in building that self-efficacy, seeing mm -hmm. that they can perform this activity. They can do this thing. And I think it's important to note here that efficacy is both a long-term and a short-term thing. I think for leaders, there are a lot of things that you need to do continuously, like the chaos monkey situation, like the training situation, that you can't do at a point in time to increase efficacy right then and now. What? I do think We're that... in an outage situation. I need to increase efficacy right now. People need to believe that they can fix this, but it's too late. If they don't believe that they can at that point, you're going to struggle. I think interesting to me and counter to generally the way that I do things, I do think that I've realized that there's short-term ways to raise efficacy that are really valid during the goal setting periods. And I'll use an example that's not in goal setting. So a lot of large companies have these things called company uh, like company MPS or this concept of how is the company doing? How is my manager doing? Am I happy with the situation? That sort of review process, culture type oh, review process. Those kind of employee surveys. Exactly. Right. And many 
actually pretty good leaders, I have found, will tactically remind their teams of the negatives they said last time and all of the stuff the leader has done for them in the three months or six months leading up to the survey that have actually improved those negatives such that they don't forget, hey, I was listening to you and things have gotten better and we'll do these meetings two weeks before the next survey or one week before the next survey or whatever. And it gets results, right? People don't forget that things have happened and they're generally happier and whatnot. And while I dislike those sorts of actions in general, I don't do them enough because of that. I think they are valuable. I don't do them enough because I dislike them, but I should do them more. I think this is a case where as you're doing goal setting and as you get into setting goals, especially if you want your team to set challenging goals, you should do more of these short-term efficacy things to raise their efficacy. Reduce stress. Plan your team activity around that time, perhaps. Raise the amount of positive feedback you're giving your team around their capabilities, right? You don't want to pander them, but when you see, especially stuff that they do well based on their capabilities, remind them of that. Hey, I noticed that your debugging skill was so great that you were able to catch this thing in two minutes or whatever. I think it's a great opportunity to do that. Providing feedback on a regular basis, timely and geared towards something that they've done well that you'd like to see more of and will make them feel good that they actually can do the job that they're being asked to do. I would just say that we want to be a little bit more targeted than that. We both believe in leaning into strengths. We both believe in uh, structuring growth based more on positive feedback, perhaps, than negative feedback. I would simply say we want to be more intentional in the goal-setting times to give feedback, especially that will increase efficacy to the particular goals that you want them to set. Um, so there are a lot of feedback around things like collaboration or you're a really good strategic thinker or whatever. But if your goal is specifically around, hey, I, need to, I know that we need to create this challenging technical system that requires a lot of expertise around cloud infrastructure and scale, my, and maybe you disagree with me, my learning here is that I want to, during the portions leading up to that goal setting activity, really enforce that the team is really good at scale, really good at cloud systems. Assuming that they um, are. Of course, assuming <laughs> that they are. You don't want to be untrue. Even if they're not, though, you want them to have efficacy. So you want to say the true things. That, yeah, you want topics. to find the positive, true things that you know that they're able to do that's related to this goal. Exactly. Exactly. So that they have a clear picture of their own ability to do things. And I think that's important because there is a bias that most of us have to downplay our abilities and think, my abilities don't matter in this case. And so mm -hmm. this will help them see, no, actually the abilities you have, they matter in this case. So let's mm -hmm. keep that in mind. One last thing before we go, Monchao, is I want to talk about commitment. And specifically a quote that I have from one of these papers, which is, when commitment is lacking, goals have little or no effect on behavior. Commitment is often easy to obtain in both laboratory and field settings because the goal is perceived as legitimate by their participants. And I think there's a very important thing in there. We were just talking about self-efficacy and how important self-efficacy is towards setting challenging goals. What we didn't get was that if you want to set any goal that actually modifies people's behavior, they have to commit. Because if they don't commit, you're not going to change any behavior. So let's talk a little bit, and I don't think it will take very long, about how do you get commitment? How do you get that commitment to a goal? Interesting. I like that you brought this up. We talked about commitment very briefly when we talked about specificity and commitment, but you didn't bring up that quote then. And I think that quote is so important. So how do we get commitment? I think in participatively set goals, you sort of are halfway there. Would you say that? I would say so. Yeah. Because by definition, what you come out of that with, there is at least some level of commitment to. And in self-set goals, then you get a higher level of that. They set the goals for themselves. Yep. So as long as they didn't feel undue pressure or whatnot, you would say that they're committed. Are there tactics that you can use to increase the level of commitment in participatively set goals? 
I would say it comes down to the second sentence of the quote that I read, which is that the goal is perceived as legitimate by the participants. It's about that legitimate, that people believe that this goal in some way matters to something that they care about. And so it's a goal that they themselves have said, yes, this really matters. We want to do this. Or it's a goal that they can easily understand the story to which it gets to, like, what's the company objective at the moment? It's that they're not being taken down a, on a wild goose chase somewhere, that when they finish it, there's some praise at the end, or there's a monetary bonus, or there's something, there's some reason for them to believe that what they're doing, others care about. I think is one aspect of it. That, that gets the, that kind of like external part. The more internal commitment, I think, I think that is then providing the story for why this goal matters. And, help, and probably even better, including them in the creation. You want to do almost a co-creation of the story, of this narrative. Mm -hmm. Why does this goal matter? Why is it legitimate? I like all of those. I think the co-creation of the story is so important when we talk about OKR setting, KPI setting. You always want to do it collaboratively. I want to add one other thing. There was this researcher named Wilson. Wilson is his last name. Is he a volleyball? And he was not stranded on a desert island for four <laughs> years. He coined these five core values when goal setting that he said would increase the likelihood of achieving success. I like that, but I also think it increases commitment. And let me run this by you and see what you think. So his five values were integrity, responsibility, fairness, hope, and achievement. And I think if you're setting goals that play into those values and people believe in those values, we talked about the achievement part of it, right? A valuable what is it, a valuable end state or that they're going to be rewarded. But I think the other stuff matters too. Do they have a responsibility for this particular goal? Do they feel responsibility toward this goal? Do they feel like it is fair? And then of course there's hope and integrity as well. I hadn't thought about that before. And so when I read it, I thought these are really interesting. And I have definitely been in places where goals would not be considered as having integrity not considered as fair, right? Like, why am I doing this goal? That team biffed this X, Y, and Z, and now I'm responsible for their thing or whatever the case may be. And I think all of that reduces commitment as well. Yes. That's, that reminds me of a quote that I sent you and I commented on. The goal performance relationship is influenced by external rewards only when people believe that the rewards are attainable. High mm -hmm. dissatisfaction occurs when rewards are perceived to be or perceived as unfair, as too impersonal, or as punishment, as can be the case when <laughs> high performers are consistently assigned more work than low performers. So yes, if people's goals are seen as a punishment because they're too good, it won't be seen as legitimate and they won't commit to it. Absolutely. All right, so let's aim for a wrap up here, Manchow. Now, let's assume we've got this listener. It's a big assumption that we've got a listener. <laughs> and, and they've just jumped to minute, let's say 45, that we've edited this down to 45 minutes. And that's where we are right now. What do you think that they should hear, having skipped everything else, what do you think they should hear as tactics that they can take away and use with their team to help them set challenging goals? I think what I would want them to take away is that while there is value in a manager coming down or a leader coming down and giving a goal to people in certain contexts, and while there is value in the team setting their own goals independently in certain contexts, most of the time you probably want to do this jointly. And joint setting of goals, what we call participatively set goals, only work when the team identifies strongly with each other and they feel like they have high team efficacy. So 
a leader's job then in making sure that their team sets challenging goals that improve performance is one, to make sure that the boundary of that team is something that has high identity and trust. Two, improving efficacy. And three, making sure that the goals have strong commitment through what we talked about with values or, or fairness and that sort of stuff. And when improving efficacy, there are both short-term and long-term things that you should do to improve efficacy. The long-term things such as training, proximate goals, that sort of thing, I would say are long-term. And the short-term things around making sure the team feels confident about their abilities during the goal-setting period by giving them positive feedback around the skills that they need to accomplish the next set of goals, as well as reducing their anxiety by giving them time off or team events and that sort of thing to put them in a positive mindset um, as they go into goal setting. That was a little bit of a long summary, but I think touches most of the points. Did I miss anything? I was going through it in my mind as you went, and I can't think of anything you've missed. I think that covered it pretty well. I hope that our conversation was illuminating for anyone who was listening. I found it really interesting going through this. It gave me a new perspective that I hadn't had on goals before. We'll put a lot of links, I think more than normal, in the show notes so that people can follow up on some of these research papers. I found them all pretty easy reading. They were not dense scientific papers. So I hope you all can go and take a gander at them and see what you can get out of them. So thank you, Mon Chao. It's been a joy. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>